שלום, שלום, שלום. Welcome, welcome to Awakening Torah Musar Mindfulness, the weekly offering from the Institute for Holiness, Kihilat Musar Mindfulness. I am the founder and director of the Institute for Holiness, Hamachon Bekdusha. I am Rabbi Chasia Uriel Steinbauer. I'm delighted to have you here and to be together to cover the Torah portion from last Shabbat, which um, <clears throat> was on December 23rd, 2023. Today is December 28th, 2023, at least here in Israel. It's early in the morning, around 1.40 a.m., so when this Torah portion happened, it was uh, Yud Aleph of Tevit, the Hebrew month of Tevit. And uh, it was uh, in the Hebrew year of Tavshin, Pei Dalet 5784. So uh, the Torah portion is Gash. And it's our 11th sitting. We've been following each Torah portion. And uh, this is the 11th one in the book of Bereshit of Genesis. So delighted to have you at this public offering. Uh, this week is deeply, deeply an honor and the loving memory of Jacob Ween. May his memory be for a blessing. I will say more about him at the end and thank our donors uh, it's just a beloved Musar practitioner, uh, someone who was a student of mine years ago and has remained just beloved in uh, my family's life and a shining light to all of us who knew him to continue with his good deeds and chesed, loving kindness. So I'll say more about him towards the end. Um. It's very appropriate that Vayigash falls actually on his yard site, on his Yom Hazikaron, because it, how Yosef, our ancestor in this Torah portion, ends up, he ends up really behaving like what we call a sadiq, a, a really righteous person, where he's able to simultaneously re reconcile with his brothers a bit of forgiveness there and at the same time care for their young. And that is a really form of recovery and healing from the trauma that was caused by his brothers to him, where they uh, wanted to kill him, threw him into a boar pit, and sold him into slavery. And that's how he ended up in slavery in Egypt and Mitzrayim. So um, Yaakov, Jacob Ween, is a really embodiment of the Sadiq, of the righteous person who lives out Musar and uh, the path, the path of Musar mindfulness. So that's how we begin today. We always begin with our, um, our intention, our intentions for today's practice. Very important that we always start our, our spiritual practice with what is we wish to bring to this session and get out of it. It's what we cover every week. So if you are watching by video right now, either live streaming or later on, you'll get to see these intentions in front of you on the screen. 
if you have vision. And for those of you who don't have vision or are listening by audio on podcasts, you'll hear me read these. So I'm going to begin sharing screen for those of you who can see and are watching. So we see this time together in what is called awakening, hit or root, really combining Torah and Musar mindfulness, the path of the Dharma and the path of Musar to learn from these two ancient traditions to get the most out of the Torah, the Hebrew Bible, from our ancestors and from God. So we see this is doing a, an act of radical self-care right now to engage in this time together. So this is something we're doing to strengthen our own souls in order to be a benefit to others later. And we're also doing this on behalf of others. So we say, I'm doing this to strengthen my relationship to others so I can be a better conduit of God's good to others when they need me. We also are doing this to strengthen our relationship to the the divine, what I may call Hashem, God. So we do this to strengthen that relationship, to be that better conduit of God's good to others. Okay, very much a Musar mindfulness is an other-oriented practice, one that is consequence-based, but is very much rooted in this lovely triangle of caring for the self, other, and God. Simultaneously, it happens as a practice. So those are our covenant, our intentions for today. May we all merit bringing that about today, uh, especially so much is needed in today's world. And if you've been following along, then you know that uh, this year of awakening, Torah Musar Mindfulness, is really dedicated to the grief and loss that all of us are experiencing in response to the October 7 genocide in Israel, the ongoing kidnapping of our people, the constant captivity of them and hostages, and the ongoing war, the so much loss of our youth uh, who are risking their lives to protect us as soldiers and fighting. So, um, I begin with a summary of the Torah portion. So I hope you've had a chance to hear this read last Shabbat, maybe at a minyan or online or in a synagogue, um, or you read through it and maybe read some of the parshanim, the commentators, the classic ones from our tradition, what we call chazal and the sages to learn what we can. So uh, what happens is, is that Yehuda who is the fourth eldest coming from Leah, he begs Yosef, who, if you recall, Yosef is serving as visor in Egypt. He is living as an assimilated Egyptian. He begs Yosef to release the youngest brother of the 12 total, and his name is Binyamin. And he, Yehuda, offers himself as a slave instead. He says to Yosef, take me instead of Binyamin. Okay? So Yosef can no longer bear the burden of closeting himself, of, of not making it so he's not recognizable to his essentially 10 brothers uh, um, and um, 11 brothers, really, and so he can't keep his identity secret anymore. He's so overcome with emotion listening to Yehuda 
that he orders all of the Egyptians out of the room and reveals his true identity to his brothers. Yosef then tells his brothers to go home, go back to the land of Canaan, get their Abba, their father, Yaakov, who is an old man now and is there with uh, the young children and the daughters. And he says, go get him and come back to Mitzrayim. Why? Because there's five more years of famine that's going to happen. You have to come and live down here. Then God, Hashem, tells Yaakov not to be afraid to go down to Mitzrayim. This is now the third ancestor, Avraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov. And then you'll also hear it with Moshe, um, where God tells them not to be afraid, even though we don't, we don't get a privy into what is it that they're afraid of. We can only guess, right? But God comes and says, don't fear going down to Mitzrayim and that his descendants will return to Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, one day. All right? Yaakov and Yosef have a very emotional reunion. When Yaakov arrives down in Egypt, in Mitzrayim, Yosef comes out to him, they embrace, they cry, and they finally speak. So Paro, the essentially emperor, like a king of Egypt, meets Yosef's brothers, and then he meets Yaakov, and he gives them permission to settle in the land of Goshen. The famine in Mitzrayim actually gets worse during this five years. And the Egyptians have to use all of their money, animals, and land to buy food from the visor, from Yosef. So that is a brief summary of Vayigash. And so what is it that we're going to focus on today? We're really going to focus on Yosef and his brothers, how the story unfolds. And I want to give you a brief... Um, a little bit of, more of a brief summary, which is um, right now Yehuda's speech, which happens in, let me give you the, we're in chapter 44, verse 18, through chapter 47, verse 31. And so I'm entering, looking at Yehuda's speech between 18, verses 18 through 34. So the encounter between Yosef and his brothers has reached this climax, this huge point, right? And um, basically the personal appeal that Yehuda steps forward to put himself online in front of Yosef, uh, he pours out his heart in what is the longest speech in the book of Genesis and Bereshit. Although most people think that it probably didn't last longer than five minutes, but how many of us actually sit and listen to someone for five minutes today? <laughs> So the speech is actually divided into three parts. And why is this important? Because we're looking at how we, as survivors, right, of this genocide and kidnapping and war, ongoing trauma of the missiles coming over, how do we cope? How do we eventually, God willing, heal and recover, right? Many of us are not even near there. We will be coping for a long time. But I'm also concerned about our brethren, both our allies, whether they're Jewish or not, and Jews in the diaspora who are all having their own reactivity to this. So we're looking at how Yehuda, how does he practice? What does he do to appeal to someone who holds all the power, 
So he has a method. And it's quite, and, and the verb itself, which is very important that you look at the shoresh, the root of a word in Hebrew, vaigash, right? It really means he drew near to Yosef. This is him beginning to lehakir, to recognize. Even if he doesn't know it's Yosef, he's getting into the visor, to this Egyptian in front of him. I, he's basically saying, I'm beginning to recognize you. I know that you are human there, there's humanity, and I'm going, to, I'm going to appeal to this. But what does he do? He divides his speech into three parts. He begins with recapitulating recent events, okay? Why they even led to coming down from the land of Canaan, down here, who's left back in the land of Canaan, trying to survive this famine. And then in the second part, he stresses the averse impact of Yosef's act upon their father that every time Yosef sends them away and then captures them and imprisons one of them delays their return and sends them back to retrieve the youngest which is just horrific for the elderly man Yaakov every act and then finally this last one where Yosef is threatening to enslaved to keep Binyamin, who is the favorite of Yaakov. All these acts have consequences. They have an effect on the body and soul of their father, on their Abba, Yaakov. So Yehuda really brings that up, really stressing, using very intentional language of Aviv, my father, and really stressing this, right? The final third part really culminates in a personal offer to take Benjamin's place as a slave, right? That's what he discusses. He does discuss the potential theft of the gavia, the goblet. It's Everyone knows that that's a farce, that it, it, it didn't happen, right? It, he really attempts to appeal to any humanity and Yosef any sense of mercy, rachamim, can he tap into this, really emphasizing the state of the aged father back in the Lanka'an, right? And um, it's so eloquent and so powerful that um, in, in what most scholars who look at this speech I think, what even led to Yehuda to have the Omet's Lev, the courage to step up to the visor and, and speak to him this way, right? And they really think it starts because Yosef kind of, to be honest with you, I don't even want to say kind of, Yosef uses uh, unkind speech, right? Unkind speech that's meant to be harmful. And it's when he says that... Uh, he turns to Yehuda, says, Benjamin must stay as a slave. And he says, the rest of you go home in peace to your father. This really upsets Yehuda, right? For how could the brothers return, go home in peace without Benjamin? If they return home without Benjamin, there's no peace for them ever for the rest of their lives because of the consequences of what's going to happen to Yosef. Right? There's no peace for the father, no peace of the whole family. And what this is actually really sig signaling, right? And really it, it should draw upon for you is 
and why Yosef would even be so um, cruel and unkind here by saying such a thing is this is essentially what happens when Yosef, who was the favorite of Yaakov at the time before he was thrown into the pit and sold into slavery, that when the brothers killed the goat, put the goat's blood on his katona tapasim, the, the jacket with the, the lovely stripes on it, the special jacket that his father gave him to the jealousy of the brothers, to the pain of the brothers. They return with his blood on the jacket and say, essentially, you recognize this jacket? Right? Really bringing such pain and suffering to their father. They didn't think for a moment, how could we return like this? Not realizing the consequences of that behavior, what's going to happen to Yaakov, let alone the consequences to Yosef and their relationship and the consequences to their own soul, that they're going to have to carry that and live with that 22 years. It's similar to the 20 years between Esav and Yaakov. There was that distance there where Yaakov fled and then had to face his brother years later. So, um, essentially, Yehuda, in his righteous anger at this idea of having to return home without Benjamin to his father, he moves through strategies of kind of fighting and fawning, right? Trying to please tap into any form of humanity and mercy on the behalf of Yosef. And then he... Um, it, what happens in that uh, ongoing uh, discussion where he draws near, right? He draws near to recognize, to, to get to know this visor more. So Yehuda Yosef, once Yosef comes out and finally says who he is, he draws near to his brothers. They can't even speak at first. They just cry and hug. And finally, they begin to speak again. Brothers who couldn't even say a kind word to him when he was a teenager, 17 years old, right? They finally can begin to communicate again. So what happens here? This has something I knew I wanted to share with you. Ah, I'll save that. I mean, I, I might be ready to move to this. Let's see here. Okay. So basically, once uh, Yehuda really does tap into Yosef's humanity, to his ability to really um, feel for his father and understand the ramifications of his attempted cruelty, right? And uh, lack of kindness, lack of wise, appropriate action. Yosef ends up uh, telling his brothers, essentially, that they are not to feel guilty or ashamed. They're not to spend time in those emotional states that are really hindrances, obstacles, and not in any storytelling or narrative going through over and over again. Look what we, oh my God, I can't believe what we did to Yosef. We did this to Yosef. We're paying for what we did to Yosef. And then how can we actually live with Yosef now and be a brother to him after what we've done? Like you could just imagine the narrative for someone who sins so powerfully how are they going to come back into relationship and humanity? Okay, that's that's a big concern. It's a big concern for us also here in Israeli society that we are 
uh, praying to Hashem, to God, that there will be a healthy, willing partner among the Palestinians someday, that they will be able to build their own nation state, right? But they're going to have to go through so much guilt and shame at their behavior, right? That how are they going to be able to heal over time to integrate into full humanity, to let go of that narrative of who they were and are, to be able to function. That's as much as concern when we talk about dehamasification or depalestification, Palestinianification. I don't even know how to turn these into words. Or de-radical jihad Islam, you know, like this process, just like we did denazification in Germany and throughout Europe, this process of really having to say, this is not acceptable. This has to change over time if you're going to be on the world map and part of this land of nation states that relate to one another and have shared resources and economy and so forth. So um, this is very important and it's probably not going to happen in my lifetime. It will probably happen in our children or grandchildren's time, Bizrat Hashem, God willing. So he goes on, Yosef, to tell his brothers not to feel ashamed and guilty that they sold him, right? He ends up kind of moving from, trying to have them move from freeze or flight, right? Of this immobilization of guilt and fear. He presents to them, he resources, he expands the window of tolerance, right? By living with purpose, he presents his brother with a totally different way of understanding what has happened. He changes it from first in order for them to lay hakir, to know him. He has to use the language that they understand and know. He says, I am Yosef, the one you sold into slavery. He has to. He uses that language because he has to, because it's the only way they're going to recognize him. Right? Because that's the last time they interacted. Right, going back to the moments of trauma. This is how you recognize me. You try to victimize me. Right? Here I'm standing before you. That's what Yosef is saying. Now you can recognize me. You can see I'm Yosef. And now I'm going to show you who I am as Yosef. And maybe even with the Egyptian name, right? And who God understands him to be and the whole place of this. He changes it from you sold me. And I don't even know what I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold it as and. Okay. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. You sold me to God sent me. He explains the whole reason that he ends up being sold to Egypt was because God was sending him on a mission that a famine was coming and he had to save his family and the Egyptians. And essentially that what they knew is the whole world then. Okay. So in this way, all of them can have a new understanding, not only of their lives, but of their relationship, right? And so um, really understanding that God is in this picture and God is in this relationship, part of this whole uh, plan. And so what this, what, what, what this way of framing does, and in and, and, and no way am I saying are we as Israelis and Jews ready to reframe like this? 
maybe someday. Uh, and for some, when you listen to some of the survivors from the Gaza envelope, those people who lived along the border that were most harmed by the genocide, right? Where the Palestinians and Palestinian terrorists entered to murder and everything else they did. It was along the communities of that border. And you've even heard some of them, very few of them use that language of understanding, trying to reframe and understand maybe a larger reason or purpose for this. We're not there yet and it's okay. We don't need to be. So he understands Yosef now after 22 years, that this is the guiding hand of, of, guiding hand of Hashem, of God. It's God planned for saving life. And the story really hints at a practice of understanding different levels of truth, which is very common in Musar mindfulness practice, right? There isn't an absolute truth. I mean, of course, there are some things that we will say are absolute truth, but that truth is, is subtle and should be aware of who we are speaking it to or acting it out on or doing with. There's so many different layers to it. So here there's a surface level they sold him into slavery. And there's the deeper level, right? Which is the guiding hand of God, right? That God sent me down here. And so uh, I wanted to bring this because Yosef, only after doing this kind of um, being the gatekeeper of his own soul, when he recognizes these people who tormented him, wanted to kill him and sold him into slavery, right? He was like, I don't feel safe around these people. I know who they are. I know what they've done. It, lots of tests, lots of, okay, are you really, am I ready to allow you into this gate? So he does these tests 22 years later, and he witnesses that the brothers have changed. The brothers really have changed. And, um, they're, they have remorse. You could hear that in their speech. He's he gets to he has the privilege to listen to that. They didn't know he could understand Hebrew at the time, and they have a willingness to sacrifice themselves through Yehuda, of course. So he, um, in recognizing them, and they're they're they too. They're no longer if they were the people who sold Yosef. They are now different people and they wouldn't sell Yosef again if given the opportunity. They don't sell out Binyamin. That is the test. It's, it's Rambam's, one of our greatest rabbis and philosophers. This is his dream, right? To be able to be given the opportunity for that same sin to approach itself, right? That Bechira point, the choice point where you could either go, I'm going to go down the wrong path and sin, or I'm going to choose the right way. So the brothers had at that moment, they could have just left Benjamin there in slavery. Bye-bye. Too bad. Too bad, Abba, because you didn't love us, Abba. You were horrible to us, Yaakov, just like they did when they brought uh, Yosef's uh, jacket full of blood. And do you recognize this? Right? They wanted to punish their father. And they don't have that in them anymore. They chose the path to save their brother, who's the favored brother, Benjamin now. They don't have that same revenge and anger and vengeance and jealousy. It's incredible. And if they do have it, they work with it. They live with it instead of allowing it to turn to rage, 
that's blinding and the greed, hatred, and delusion and want to kill Benjamin, right? So they, he suddenly reckoned, Yosef recognizes them as something other too. They are something more now than just the people that sold him. And this allows, it, essentially the gatekeeper, which is Yosef, allows them in. He comes out of the closet. He lets them know who he is. They're able to suddenly recognize him because all they saw was the Egyptian and the visor. They didn't recognize the 17-year-old boy who was thrown in the pit and sold into slavery. He's now a grown man, right? So it's incredible what they go through. Um, and the very language that we want to be careful here, because the tradition really wants us to see that this is no longer, no longer was it a sale that was done to Yosef, but providential mission. And the language but is very much used by most of the Parshanim and sages who discuss this. I want us to have more of the nuanced understanding of how we use the practice, for instance, of the Dharma of mindfulness today, that yes, there was a sale. And, and there is providential mission. And this is very important because I feel like when you live in the and and honor, yes, this did happen. I don't need to erase it. I don't need to pretend it didn't happen, that this is all God's will. And therefore it erases the trauma and what was done to me, the grief and loss. We don't have to have that story anymore. We can say this did happen and there's providential mission. And we might get there someday, or at least our children and grandchildren, right? We might be able to look at October 7th and then the ongoing war and kidnappings and captivity and say, yes, there was this horrible genocide and trauma and grief and loss. And there is a providential mission here. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if we'll get to that. That's part of my tikva, part of my hope for all of us as we cope. So this is what I offer you in the teaching today. Um, that um, the brothers are able to move uh, through their shame and guilt because something kind of incredible happens. Yosef I don't know if I would say there's forgiveness there. I mean, maybe there's there's different levels of forgiveness that we'll go into into our sitting meditation together. Uh, just like there's different levels of truth, right? We had the surface level truth that he was sold into slavery and the deeper level that this is God's hand. I think the same thing is happening with forgiveness, right? I don't think Yosef is just blindly forgiving, right? Uh, especially at the beginning, if you look at his trajectory in his life, when he names Menashe, his son, where he says, I've forgotten basically the pain and trauma of my childhood home, uh, that's his first le level of forgiveness. He's not going to be defined by that past trauma or grief or loss anymore. It's still with him, but he's not going to, it's not going to be the only identity, the only thing about Yosef. And so that's the first layer of forgiveness that I think happens. And then the next, I think, is another layer that we see witnessing here where he is able to witness that they have changed enough that they're worthy of entering the gate. 
he's the gatekeeper, right? Of his own soul to protect himself, just like we are. So he's, he forgives enough to allow them to enter, but I don't, I don't see complete forgiveness here. And you can witness it in the language, right? It's almost like with Esau and Yaakov, there's reconciliation, but there's also a little bit of walking on eggshells. I'm going to watch you, right? This is what, this is the consequence of causing harm and suffering. This is the consequence of genocide, of trauma. When you are the agent, when you cause it, you're forever going to live as someone who cannot be trusted 100%, who will always be a little bit under some suspicion. And it's the job of us who are coping and recovering through this grief and loss and healing, how much can we get close to trusting, forgiving, being present with, being a little bit less suspicious because it hurts us at the soul level to walk around with that hypervigilance, even though we have to continue to be gatekeepers, especially, especially in response to October 7th. So Yosef moves through, how is he a Sadiq? Sadiq is someone who can forgive at some level someone, maybe not forget, like the Shoah, like the Holocaust. And he commits to caring for all of his brother's children. Bring them to Goshen. I will carry, care for them. Right? He strives to become a Sadiq, a righteous man. He it, strives to remain one. So difficult to move through reconciliation. And this is just, it's just so, it's such a, a model of deep humanity, right? And how um, there's nothing perfect here. There's nothing um, absolutely clean, right? That we can walk away feeling it's a new, it's a new slate. Um, and what, what, what's, what's the consequence when the honeymoon's over? right? When they cry and they hug and they're finally able to talk. It's what I call after the reconciliation, right? After everyone's done sipping from uh, the same cup of tea of such release, right? Of 22 years of so much pain, right? Um, he, Yosef, has to tell his brothers, and he, he has so much emotional intelligence by now, who he, who makir, who does the act of recognizing? Remember, he picked up the baker and the cupbearer's crestfallen faces when they had their bad dreams and they didn't know how to interpret them. He picked up on their faces. He began to develop that emotional intelligence. Also, he practiced, he strives, right? He used wise effort. He tried to engage. He started seeing others. So here he sees the brothers. He must see on their faces, even though they've hugged and kissed and gotten back together, he must see, see something that is not recorded in the Torah. Because he says in chapter 45, verse 24, let me take you there. <clears throat> this is very important. He says, right. Vaishalach et echav. Vayelechu, Vayomer lechem, Al tir gezu, Baderech. 
as he sent off, as Yosef sent off his brothers on their way. Remember now he's sending them back up to the land of Canaan to retrieve their father, Yaakov, who's up there with the young children, with the daughters, the, the women who are up there. And he, as he sends them off on their way, he tells them, so this gets translated by Rashi and others as don't be quarrelsome along the way. And I, I actually don't, you know, this is a lovely thing about the Jewish tradition. Um, it, and many traditions who are very ancient, they'll have many different uh, commentary and, and opinions on things. But here, what you're getting from what I just translated is, of course, the Targums, Rashi, Ibn, uh, Yanach, and Radach all understand it as don't be quarrelsome, right? But if you look at Rashbam, Bakor, Shor, Ranban, and Hizkuni, they really take the verb as expressing concern for their safety. And what would that mean? What's that mean, their safety? So the verb is reish gimel zayin, right? Which means trembling. But what kind of trembling is this? Try to remember in your embodied self the last time you trembled. What usually is the emotional state? It can be fear and it could be rage, right? A deep rage, an agitation, a deep concern, a rage, right? This is These are the overtones. And so they understand this text to mean, have no fear on your journey to back to the land of Canaan and back, right? Which means don't engage in mutual recriminalization. Don't you turn your rage towards one another and blame. You wanted to kill him. You wanted to sell him in slavery. You went away and didn't save him and you were the eldest Reuven. Why didn't you intervene more? Yehuda, why did you even offer, like bring up to sell him into slavery? Why All of you wanted to kill him at the beginning. What kind of people are you? On and on and on, you can just see it. If you have siblings, I'm the youngest of four. I know this. <laughs> Siblings can just go at each other's throat if they somehow feel guilty and fearful and shameful of their behavior. They blame one another, try to find who's responsible, right? To the to to the to the death in some in cases. Obviously, we've seen um uh violence, unfortunately. Uh, when violence happens, it's often in families and often uh, siblings towards each other, if not towards the parents, unfortunately. So um, this is very important. Yosef must have picked up on that, that rage starting to come, that agitation, the trembling as they started getting ready and heading back to the land Canaan, right? And, um, you know, tells them, don't do it. Don't head down that path. Now, did they not do it? We don't know. We don't know. I, I mean... To give the benefit of the doubt, they, they do arrive. They're able to kindly tell their brother. There's a wonderful, beautiful midrash where um, they're actually so mindful and concerned about their father hearing the news that Yosef is still alive. They're worried that he's going to have a heart attack because he's so shocked that he's still alive. That um, they send uh, Serach, their, one of the youngest uh, daughters, to go and like play the harp and gently sing a song about how Yosef is still alive in order for that to slowly go into Yosef 
so that not Yosef, Yaakov, excuse me, so that he can begin to kind of dream and feel that his son is still alive. And then, then the brothers can come and say, you see all these carriages and everything that's here? Yosef is still alive. It's time to head down to Mitzrayim, to Egypt and see him. Beautiful story. Because what is behind that story is finally a people, even our own, and the commentators, the, that uh, we need to recognize other people. We need to recognize if they're uh, ready to hear what we have, the message we have to deliver, and even ourselves. Um, and so there's a real beauty there of really uh, drawing near, right? Drawing near lehakir to recognize, so that I can bring God's good to you so I can be a benefit to you. That's it. This is the beauty of this Torah parasha this week. And we will, we're going to move into our mindfulness meditation practice right now on a practice of letting go, uh, which is less a directive right now. It's going to be a lifelong practice for us. Uh, And so we're going to start it today. Uh, before I go into the meditation, we are meeting, um, uh, let me look here, this coming uh, Shabbat on uh, December 30th, which is the 18th of Tevet, we will uh, read and study Vayachi. It is the last, it's the 12th sitting and 12th uh, Torah portion in the last of the book of the Rashid of Genesis. Please read it. Um, feel free to read commentaries and I will join you or early in the week to talk about it and cover it and see what we can learn from it as part of our own path of practice. Okay, so let's assume a posture that we can feel upright and dignified and also at ease at ease. Okay. So for some of us, that's going to be in a seated posture. Like right now I'm uh, in a chair. I move to the edge to be upright, not West Point stiff as our teacher, John Kabat-Zinn reminds us not to do. Um, but you know, you can even lift up your shoulders, let them rest and fall. Uh, I think it's a beautiful thing to do to kind of come in, make sure your feet are really grounded if you're seated in a chair held by Mother Earth. Feel the weight of your sit bones. It really helps as a grounding practice. For those of you who have any back pain or chronic issues, feel free to lie down on the couch or uh, in the bed or stand in a strong mountain pose, or even just do walking meditation, which is back and forth, right? Not particularly going anywhere, okay? So we're going to assume our posture. Let your hands rest wherever they're comfortable. Inhalation. Exhalation. Inhalation and exhalation. Closing the eyes if you feel safe, if you have vision. Otherwise, just lowering your gaze. Really inviting yourself here with me to this present moment, to listening to my voice, 
and direction, allowing yourself to settle and arrive. And you're going to invite something that might be challenging for some of us, if not all of us. We're going to feel into a loss, whatever loss we want to select from October 7th until today. And we want to try to bring to awareness any unnecessarily embarrassed, like embarrassment by it, or if we're affected by judgments of others, or a sense of being really hard on ourselves. If you think that, what is it that rogue is, that going to rage that uh, Yosef was picking up on his brothers? We don't go to rage unless we're often covering embarrassment, shame, judgment, being really hard on ourselves, right? That's why we want to get the blame off of ourselves onto somebody else, that recriminalization, right? So all of us might have had this process where we're feeling embarrassments or being plagued by judgments of others or self-judgment from the loss. And I invite you to just acknowledge if it's true where you have felt needlessly embarrassed or ashamed or self-critical or remorseful. And we sit together in refuge, seeing if we can let it go. We've already paid the price. We've served the sentence. Right? We don't need to keep hammering a point. This is when we can bring self-forgiveness. A self-forgiveness that recognizes Whatever is true, whatever might have happened, whatever might have felt unskillful or not the right behavior, or you wish you had done this or this differently, really releasing harsh, punishing criticism, right? That, that record player of, if I could have just locked the door better, or if I could have done this or not gone down there or not stayed there, whatever, whatever the record player is saying, it's coming to forgiving ourselves, right? We're never going to be in that same place and time again. We're never going to do whatever we did again. And you might not be ready to move on but I invite you now to imagine me here and others who are sitting with us of forgiving you. And like you are forgiving me. Imagine that sinking in, feeling forgiven. 
we've all done what we can to be on this path to start helping it feel better. Opening hands of repair, of friendship, staying the course, whatever is true for you. Letting go of objects, of routines, of memories that we've held on. Perhaps to avoid feeling the loss. Perhaps to avoid feeling that it really happened, how true it is. Recognizing that we have to slow down for this one, whether we like it or not. And most of us are probably not ready to let go of grievances or resentments. It's okay. It's okay to be on your own timetable. You'll know when it's time to let go of them. Here the practice is seeing clearly. Seeing clearly. Standing up for ourselves, making that decision to be the gatekeeper to protect ourselves. Really letting go of that which is toxic. Anything that move into chronic resentment, chronic grievance. Of course, we still have our upright moral judgment, our wise discernment. We can value that there's an appropriate place for it to be our own gatekeeper. We know we can stick up for ourselves and should, no one else will. Opening the hand and recognizing is there hot coal that we're carrying Is this relevant to us? And so some of us may be ready to open experientially to potentially two kinds of forgiveness, right? There's a forgiveness of those who have wronged us, which we might not be ready for. And there's also the forgiveness of those who have made a bad thing worse. And we all know who I'm talking about. All those who are Jew haters, those who are not being allies, those who are not standing up and taking responsibility. We're just acting badly, right? And we may not be ready to move into any kind of forgiving. And that means we don't do it. When we are ready, that first level of forgiveness will be a disentangled one. We're not ready to give full pardon. This is Yosef uh, when he has his son, Menashe. This is his disentangled forgiveness, right? Where he says, I'm no longer locked into that sick family back in the land of Canaan, right? 
it's not him interested in sustaining deep compassion for them or normalizing the relationship. He doesn't even reach out to them. Forget about it. He doesn't have to. He's not ready for that. But he doesn't want to keep holding that hot coal. There's no need for that anymore. He disentangles himself from the family in a kind of forgiving that he's no longer preoccupied by it. And someday we will be ready for this. Maybe some of you are ready. Particularly those outside the Gaza envelope and further out in these circles of love and obligation out further into the diaspora. We can experiment with this over time. We'll know when we say, I don't want to be preoccupied with this. I'm not going to hold the hot coal anymore. For most of us, it is still too soon. Too soon. We'll come back to this conversation again and again. To this practice together. And there are different things we can do to help disentangle ourselves. We might be able to begin to look at the other people, the forces and factors that led to who they are today, kind of unpacking that can help us move from a disentanglement with them. Maybe there may be someday a compassion of looking at the younger version of them that can help us move towards forgiveness. And sometimes it might just be awareness that justice by Hashem, by God, broadly can unfold in mysterious ways, yes? And ultimately, it's not our job to be an instrument of justice in their life, particularly when it's not working and it hasn't. It's not landing on them. It's not relevant to them. It's a kind of letting go. Knowing that justice is coming their way, consequences. This is a form of disentanglement. And sometimes and someday, we may come to full pardon and we may not. Right? It's where we're able to say, I'm not going to hold a grudge from what was done on the worst day of my life. I wish it was done differently. I wish to have some type of normative relationship or life again. I never will. We never will. There probably will not be trust between the Palestinians and Gazans and the people who live in the Gaza envelope or perhaps any Israeli and perhaps any Jew, but maybe someday we will feel that we are able to move on for our own health and well-being. But to whatever extent is real for you, 
this kind of givingness, forgiveness of generosity and releasing has to be for our own health and well-being. We have to be the gatekeepers. It is grace for us. It is nurturing, right? But it has to be authentic and true with no pressure by anyone else when we are ready. And then, of course, there's waking up to the reality of our life after October 7th. Knowing the obstructions, the rules that were not followed. The practical implications, the financial issues, the change of life circumstances. We don't want it to be this way. but we have to just stick with the process. So it's about us coming to terms with the practical implications, which are hard enough on their own. And we can get bound to this loss, bound to the part of life and the loss of the sight of the whole of our life. We need to recognize that being with loss is to help metabolize it so we're less bound to it. And the part of that is keeping in mind the whole, our whole life, our parents' whole life, our grandparents, our ancestors, right? This kind of prodding to open from the tunnel vision of October 7th and the war to the larger whole of our body and mind, of our life and our future. Very important. This is such a profound loss, such a profound trauma, grief, and, and it's not the whole of life. It's overwhelming, sometimes a total shock. We're in the acute moment and some of us are still there. It feels as the whole of life. And just to honor that, don't wish it away. Just be with it. Inhalation, exhalation. Inhalation and exhalation, allowing the breath to settle to its own natural rhythm. Coming back to the breath, knowing that there can be contraction and expansion. Grounding again, feeling into your sit bones and your feet. Perhaps after the breath passes, some days, some weeks, months, it might become part and parcel to recognize that this is part of our lives, not the whole of our lives. Enabling us to move forward in reasonable ways, authentic, timed, on our own watch. 
And we'll just take this last few minutes in silence to just let whatever is useful for you to land right now in safety here with me in terms of what feels like letting go, if anything. I will ring the bell when we come out of our shared meditation. Feeling how heavy it might feel right now. Knowing that part of the problem is that this is not one trauma, not one grief and loss. If anything that the Palestinians and Palestinian terrorists are quite gifted at right now is a soul and psychological manipulation to attempt to cause re-traumatization over and over again with acute pain and loss, and grief and problems. And that's why we have to learn to be gatekeepers. How much are we really going to allow that manipulation and let in? How much are we going to really say, this is not acceptable? Or consequences for your behavior. We will not accept this. And that is what we are attempting to do one day at a time, strengthening each other. So really just holding and honoring that. You are not alone and you are not expected to do this alone. For those of you, it's just too much. Just honor that. Say, I can't be with this right now. I need to come out of the meditation. And if that is you, open your eyes, look around the room, know that you are safe, that you are here in the present moment with me, with all of us joining this live streaming or watching it later. Kindness, compassion, 
chesed, a deep loving kindness, a deep nidivut, a deep generosity to carry you, to carry us. you are ready, if you had your eyes shut, gently open them, allowing the light to come back in. Give Hashem a bow, God. Give yourself a bow in honor of your practice. Give your teacher a bow. Give your community taking refuge here together in the Institute for Holiness together. Really just whoo, holding and honoring as we try to walk this path together. So I had brought up who we are honoring the memory of today. And I'll briefly just say um, some a little bit of words about him to share with you today. I'm just going to pull up what I have. Uh, assuming that I can pull it up. <laughs> uh, we all do our best, right? Um, okay. So, um, Yaakov. Okay. Beloved, beloved Yaakov. If you knew Yaakov Jacob Wien, you you know who I'm talking about. He was born in New York City in 1946. He passed away today, December 28th, 2013. He was an extraordinary husband, stepfather, father-in-law, grandfather, a family man, and a friend, beloved student of mine, and so much more than that. He became a surrogate Saba grandfather to my children when we were living near him in New York and really just opened his heart and home to to my children and um what I loved about him is that he not only in his life okay we talk about right livelihood right as part of the path of the dharma the eight uh, the eightfold path he uh, tirelessly uh, fought for tenants and artists' rights throughout New York City for 35 years as a lawyer. He taught so many lessons, but his daily imperative of how he lived was performing acts, daily acts of nidivud, of generosity, of chesed, of loving kindness. He was phenomenal and still is, obviously, the memory of him. Uh, I can't even begin to tell you how he touched us uh, in the in the Musar Vad, how he was as a student with his other practitioners, how he loved and supported them, how he was so beloved and dear to his wife, Vatsheva, also known as uh, Bani, who, of course, we love and was like a surrogate safta to us, a grandmother. His 
his neshama is just, he's a sadiq. He is, and this is why it's so beautiful that Hashem right now has this Torah portion of Vayigash, of drawing near, of recognizing, because that's what Yaakov did. He drew near and he recognized you, bringing his generosity and loving kindness, always advocating for those in most need. And um, that they're happening at the same time. This is the hand of God. This is seen deeper, right, than just the surface level. So we honor you. We honor you, Yaakov ben Shenur Zalman Vizisel Dvora. His full Hebrew name, just light, just light. So may we all take this, uh, this, this light given to us, still shining down from Yaakov, to really guide us during this, because he really would have done everything he could in his power to love and support his people his ancestral land. And so we may gain strength from him. So we honor him today. Thank you to all of you who have donated in his memory and honor. And uh, do be in touch with me through the Institute to sponsor a weekly sitting, either in memory of someone or in honor of someone. So I thank you again. We will meet soon to go over Bezvat Hashem, God willing, Vayachi, the last uh, Torah portion in Bereshit. Uh, after drawing near together, uh, we move into looking at um, life and how Yaakov prepares for death. So thank you again. God bless you. Be your gatekeeper. Strengthen one another. Take care.